Are you looking for affirming and uplifting apparel? Check out plantedaffirmations.store now and choose your favorite item today. Planted Affirmations is a black woman-owned business rooted in love and affirming words. Allow Planted Affirmations to announce your proper pronouns with their empowered pronouns line available in tees, hoodies, and fanny packs. Start a powerful conversation with the You Are Not Broken line. Shop today at plantedaffirmations.store. That's P-L-A-N-T-E-D. A-F-F-I-R-M-A-T-I-O-N-S dot S-T-O-R-E. You're listening to Living Millennial Podcast, a podcast that features and celebrates Black millennials doing amazing things in industries that they're in. We'll tap into all things trending and some that aren't. Let's get deep fast. Hey, y'all, welcome back to Living Millennial. I am one of your hosts, Brittany. And we don't have Mandisa with us today. She is living her best life with her family, spending much needed time with them. However, Living Millennial Podcast, as you all know, we love celebrating Black millennial voices, experiences, and perspectives. And I have a special guest today. I have Octavia Carson, so that I'm not alone. (laughs) Welcome, welcome. Tell our audience um, a bit about yourself to get us started. All right. Uh, well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me on. Um, my name is Octavia Carson, and now I officially have the Esquire at the end. <laughs> uh, my pronouns are they, them. I, um, let's see, I graduated from law school last year, May 2020. I was a valedictorian of my class. Um, then I got licensed in the District of Columbia, where I live now. Um, then I got licensed in California, where I used to live, um, and I hope to go back to. Um, currently, I work as an attorney advisor for the Board of Immigration Appeals, and that's in the Executive Office of Immigration Review, and that's all for the Department of Justice. Um, I received that position through the prestigious Department of Justice Attorney General Honors Program. Um, and. I'm also the executive director and founder of the Community Fund for Black Bar Applicants. Um, I also call it the Black Bar Applicant Fund for short. (laughs) Um, That fund we'll probably get into a little bit more, but basically we help raise money for other Black Bar applicants to give them financial support while they study for the bar exam because it's really expensive. Um, And I'm also a pre-law coach. I help people Um, with their application for law school. I help them figure out their their goals for like which law school they want to go to, how how to get their resume together, their cover letter, their personal statement, all that good stuff. I'm a scholarship coach as well. Um, A bit of background about me and how I why I started to do that is um, I am a scholarship baby. I went to undergrad and law school on full rides. I did not pay for any of my education. I did not pay for any of my study abroad. I've traveled to 26 countries and counting and majority of those countries were paid for because I was a student. Yes. Yes. So I 
I know how to help people level up and get that money for school. Um, and uh, I've been doing that with the Lawyer Bay organization. It's pretty big on Instagram. You can just follow them at Lawyer Bay. Um, I'm also the membership coordinator. So if other lawyers want to join, they can be placed on the directory. They can get a spotlight on our Instagram page. And that's all I'm gonna hit y'all with today because I was cool <laughs> and we can go over more another day. <laughs> I mean, at this point, it's like, what don't you do? That is dope. That's amazing. I'm to do stuff that I want to do. <laughs> so I was actually going to ask about, um, you were talking about helping with pre, uh, helping with the pre-law process, right? Yeah. And which is interesting because once upon a time, not long ago, actually some years, a couple years ago, I was actually, um, I was, uh, I'm trying to think of, I lost my words. You were See, in a I was studying program. for the LSAT. That lets you know how that process went for me, huh? Because I didn't look, I didn't wipe it out of my brain. Couldn't even say it. <laughs> I, didn't do, I didn't do well on my LSAT. That is my testimony. I took it one time. Both times I took the exam, I suffered a great loss in my family. I lost my grandma. And I lost mm. I lost my younger cousin. Um, both times, like, I was ready. I had my books. I should have done a class, but, like, I couldn't afford it. But mm. I definitely recommend if you got a couple extra dollars or if you can fundraise somehow or get the money from your family, pay yeah. for that LSAT course. I'll be honest. I tell people, all, I brag about it. <laughs> I scored a 141 the first time, which is garbage. And I think I leveled up and got a 149 the second time. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And it was just a hard, like I was grieving heavily. Mm -hmm. I was not like mentally ready to take the LSAT, but I was ready to go to law school. Crazy enough. I just needed, yeah, it was a few months in between the LSAT and law school. So I just need wow. those few months to like, you know, pump myself up. Yes. And I told myself when I go to law school, I'm just show out and I'm doing it for my family. And that's what I did. I pretty much got all A's every single class. I was on point. People didn't know how people would ask me, how did you do this? I'm like, I would tell you, but we're competition <laughs> right now. <laughs> Not competition. <laughs> well, I on the curve. No, I helped a lot of people. I helped a lot of people in law school. Um, I did like teacher assistant and um, just spent extra time helping people. That's amazing. I mean, the highest grade I think you can get is like a 180 or 185. Mm -hmm. There's no passing it per se, but like if you get a 160, you got a good shot at getting into mm -hmm. a good law school. And if you get 170, you pretty much get into whatever law school you want to. Mm -hmm. um, but 141 and 149 is like, you shouldn't really be getting into law school. <laughs> <laughs> right. Really good um, <laughs> grades in undergrad. My resume was good. My cover letter was good. My personal statement was good. I knew how to fill out the application. I knew yeah. how to uh, answer every addendum in a way that would catch their eye. And that's yeah. what I teach people in my pre-law coaching. Like, how do you make it without having, like, the perfect scores and grades and all that? <laughs> yeah, which is, which is a true testimony uh, to the fact that, like, test scores don't necessarily give you um, an example. Well, it gives you an example, but it doesn't necessarily tell you what the person can really do. Just by, right. like the numbers alone or that number alone. Like, yeah. because when that passion is there, when that fuel is there, when you have your ancestors, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Guiding you and, and, and pushing exactly. you through. Come on now. You <laughs> exactly. Come on, yeah, you can do anything. So that's amazing. 
Thank you so much. I appreciate that. The claim to fame to the to the LSAT specifically is that it will tell a law school how well someone's going to do on the bar exam or whether or not they're going to pass. And I passed the bar exam, the California bar exam on the first try. Um, and the passage rate, it was like, I think 27% passage rate Mm. or something like that it was real low under 50 percent for sure but wow. like either it was 27 percent passage rate or 37 percent. i think 37 percent is too high i really think it was 27 percent um but yeah the passage rate is super low people who go to the law school i went to people who get the lss score i went to don't pass on the first try statistically mm. but um you know i've trained myself to not become a, a statistic a lot throughout my life i mean i love that I, I just like, you know, power through either way. Yeah. And I try to help other people do it too. I love that. That says a lot about your focus, right? On your goals and the fact that like tunnel vision. Yeah. On it's what all it is about you me. Do. It's all about me and what I'm about to provide. You know, like it's yeah. not about the statistics. It's not about what they think about my background, what they, what they are going to prejudge me for. Like as soon mm -hmm. as I walk into an interview, as soon as I walk into a classroom, people forget what, maybe on a paper that they didn't like or you know what I mean yeah Ooh, <laughs> tell that come on there we about to shift this look we already in a discussion forget the game forget everything else um because that's real oh I do have a question too are you so have you worked with the Earl B Gilliam uh yes. association yeah so you know Andrea and Marissa oh, everybody the whole gang yeah yeah <laughs> she's a she was a great mentor while I was in law school um, even when I wasn't physically in her presence just like watching her lead she's another person that breaks statistics all the time like she went from a public defender to running for her district attorney and she had a great run great she run did, the other did. side wasn't whatever they was doing <laughs> like I ain't gonna even comment but, <laughs> you won't uh, even mention that name it was the establishment <laughs> you know she was up against the establishment um yeah so Earl B. Gilliam was a great like support system I always tell people who are going to law school it's probably the same for like people who are trying to do med school who are trying to become accountants who are trying to be PAs like physician assistants whatever your area you're trying to go to look for your niche group who that are like gathering to like fundraise or do mm -hmm. socials and stuff like that so for the law and for Black people in the law, you want to look for groups of people who are coming together for the purpose of elevating Black people in the law. So Early Gilliam Bar Association is a Black bar association in San Diego. And immediately I got connected with them. I joined. Um, I went to their backyard parties. I talked to um, everybody. I was there, you know, listening to all the advice they had to give. And next thing you know, uh, I was also volunteering at their events. And next thing you know, I was receiving a $12,000 scholarship from them based off of grades, but also really based off of reputation. I've heard yeah. what happened at that table when they were deciding who was going to get that that jackpot. And they were like, hey, everybody easily. Oh, Octavia, yeah, I saw, I saw them at this event, this event, this event. You know what I mean? Like, um everybody knew me and so based off reputation alone I was already ahead of the game yeah. um, and that, that goes for a lot of other black uh, bars so I was I hardly 
went to LA like for events and stuff like that, but I was very involved with the LA um, uh, Black Bar Association, which is called the Langston Bar Association. Mm -hmm. And I got, I think, I want to say a $12,000 scholarship from them too. Yeah. <laughs> no, I got, when I was in law school, I got, let me borrow a dollar. I'm just kidding. <laughs> in law school I got over like three hundred thousand dollars in scholarships I ain't even playing but that's amazing uh, that's amazing that says a lot about that says a lot about being purposeful and networking Mm -hmm. I think we I think we forget especially when it comes to education I think we forget that like networking and and reciting your passions and getting involved in associations and things like that um that's important to do it's yeah. important to do. It's, it's important to get good grades and study and things like that. But ultimately, especially for those of us who have uh, personalities that stand out more than their grades, aka yeah. me, <laughs> that's that's important. Um, that's very important to do. So um, I'm glad you're you're here as a testimony to that, for real, yeah. or a testament I to hope, that. I hope people follow through and go to lawyers base, lawyer base page, go to their bio, click that link in. Um, looking to get in a scholarship coach, resume coach, cover letter coach, statement coach, mm-hmm. whatever they need to like propel themselves in their industry. So mostly lawyers, though, mostly catering to lawyers. <laughs> lawyers, thank yeah. you. Yeah, but I'm helping other people with their resumes and stuff, too. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, too, because, again, it sounds like, you know, your passion is really leaking out for others, right? Like, and and you you you're giving back because you've been given so much, you know, to, to literally go through probably, it sounds like like majority of your, um, higher, even higher education, right. Undergrad and pre-law and law school, all those things like, um, to do that and to be able to do that without having to dig in your own pockets. Um, Mm -hmm. like, you know, I had no pockets to dig in. I even gonna lie. (laughs) See? What motivated me was like my parents were arguing one day after I had got into like I got accepted to like 20 schools and I was getting like a little scholarship here, a little scholarship there. And my parents was like, oh, Tay's going to have to go to Eastern University. One of like one of the, you know, not of the, it wasn't on top of my list to go to. Right. I really wanted to go to University of Michigan, Michigan State, Emory, you know, like these like pseudo Ivy League schools um and my parents were just like yelling they don't even go together (laughs) you know what I mean like my parents aren't even together they just and they normally are real copacetic like real get along good co-parents and all of that but this was just a really big source of stress for them like how are we going to pay for our first child's schooling when my dad had a second child about to go my sister is about to go to school the next year and then my brother was coming down the line about to go to school like a few years after that. So for them, and then my parents just aren't, they, they find it's not set up like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? They just and always. First generation making, going into college. Yeah. Mm. They just always been making it. So I was going to make the sacrifice and just go to Eastern. I was going to cry. I was like, I don't know how long I was, I'm going to last. I'm going to leave, go back to the uh, little Coney Island restaurant that I was working at (laughs) and flip burgers and sell hot dogs because I don't want to be there you know um until I had you know that networking part came through and people were like oh here's a full ride for Central Michigan University uh apply for this 
the deadline like the next day. You know what I did? I stayed up all night at the school. I was at the school. The teacher was like, you know, I put together my whole portfolio. I did some graphic designs, photoshopping. I uh, wrote, I typed out a whole bunch of uh, explanations for like each. I was in journalism. Um, so oh, each yeah. article that I wrote, all the designs that I created, um, I went out and got a binder. I put it all together. I wrote my personal statement. I was raw, I was real about like the situation I was going through. How I was sleep. I lived with my grandma at the time. I didn't even live with my mom. I was sleeping like on the floor most nights or whatever, just trying to make it because I had to, you know, live with my grandma. And she had like six other people in a two bedroom apartment, you know. Oh wow. So so I like poured it out, poured out everything I was going through, but also showed them like, look at all this other stuff that I'm doing, even while like I'm good under pressure. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not, it's not really about you feeling bad for me. It's just like, look, I'm strong. Yeah. So um, I put that application together in like a day. Then I had my professor or teacher at the time read over my materials. I had like three, I always the rule of three for these applications and stuff to have three people read over everything because somebody gonna catch oh, something yeah. and somebody gonna have some good ideas mm -hmm. and someone else is gonna like just be real about it right mm -hmm. so I had three teachers and I think the counselor read over everything I made the edits immediately you know that was my priority no other school assignment um <laughs> me my mom and my grandma we like said prayers over the binder sealed it up in the envelope sent it first class like immediately out you know what actually I think the deadline was so close we put it in the envelope to do all of that but my grandma ended up driving it to the office of the guy who was taking the applications and she Come left on, grandma. right oh my god we was on a mission when I and people give up when it's a last minute deadline they're like no nah, I'm not gonna do nothing don't wait to the last minute but if it's a last minute thing yeah do it. still yeah. do it it's like you throw it it's like you know, uh, I don't know. It's that buzzer shot. <laughs> oh, that buzzer beater. That, that, yeah, that buzzer hey. beater. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's you know other sports reference. <laughs> um, yeah, so we did we did that, and I got a call back like a few weeks later, and uh, my 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 teacher picked up the phone, and my teacher was like, "You got a call from this person." I'm like. Mm -hmm okay hey what's going on it's Octavia and they were like uh you just got a full ride and I was like this is a scam <laughs> <laughs> they're like we're gonna pay for your whole school and everything I'm like for real <laughs> yeah that's amazing did you cry I would yeah cried. I cried <laughs> but I cried I delayed because I still couldn't get it in my head that it was real mm -hmm. so I told my mom I was like mom look talk to this person <laughs> <laughs> And she talked to them. She's like, it's a jail. I'm like, all right. Then I bust out crying. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. They, had, they put out a newspaper article. Random people was recognizing me. It was crazy. And then I still kept getting scholarships at that school. And that summer before I went to school too. That's amazing. This is a lot about <laughs> the work you put in. And I yeah. think... I think that's what this conversation is really going to evolve into or even more um, is the, is like the work that we put in um, into whatever it is that we're doing. And when we put in our all, when we, you know, when we stay focused 
Uh, and, you know, we just, we, we don't do things half-assed. We're going to get, we're going to get everything we want back like tenfold. Um, I think to, to bring it back to the name of the podcast, um, you know, living millennial, I think that is exactly what it's like. I mean, post-millennial, like, you know, um, what is it? Our Gen Z's? Our Gen Z's, yeah. Yeah. They are also hard workers and have to work very hard for the most basic things. Mm -hmm. But I think this is controversial, but the people who came before millennials didn't necessarily have to do the stuff that we had to do. And I say that not to say that they're not hard workers, but like, like the bare minimum yo like we have to work so hard just for the bare minimum um I know my grandparents moved up from down south to work in Michigan in the car industry mm-hmm. and stuff like that so my granddad with a three uh, third grade education my grandma no none of them graduated from high school None of my grandparents graduated from high school. Uh, maybe maybe my grandma, but I don't even think she worked right away. Like her, my granddad was my other grandma, my, my dad's mom. Dad's um, yeah, but most of them, they ain't graduated from high school. No like specific training in anything, but they were working in the factories. You know what I mean? So that their generation has sources of income um, that didn't require just like, being super creative and just like scraping <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean uh yeah. we're yeah. literally building and inventing our sources of income these days we're building and inventing new ways to pay for school to pay for medical care um mm-hmm. the the price of living the cost of health care um the cost of everything is so exponential right now that it's like you yep. can't you cannot make it you like cannot make it without putting in some sort of effort um yeah so mm-hmm. I think what I'm doing is just like a, it's just a, a mirror of like what it's like being a millennial I totally agree to sum everything up you just said like we basically have to like I, what I say is we we have to dig ourselves out of the holes that have been that was created for us Mm-hmm. right? We're living in the decisions that were made before we even got here, yep. you know? And they were as well. However, um, I think even the generations before the boomers and the Gen Xers, which is like my parents' generation, like, you know, they were still focused on like sustaining the country, like just a, the stability of a country. The economy mm-hmm. was in a different, um, was in a different state. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's just different for us right now. And though millennials are thriving in some areas, we cannot, we cannot ignore the fact that, you know, there's a lot, there's other areas where we're not, where we're struggling, where we have to work 10 times harder. And mm-hmm. you used a great word. I use this word all the time too, but we have to be innovative, mm-hmm. um, with what is given to us. And mm-hmm. I give us a shout out all the time because, mm-hmm we basically, I feel like we've created a blueprint All right. to survive this shit, right? Yeah, survival guide. Like, how to survive? <laughs> there is no, like, sources of stable income. No, when the housing market is in a flux, housing and renting market is in a flux. When 
everybody just out there trying to get a buck, you know, like how to survive that. Exactly. How to survive that during global warming, like major global warming. We're experiencing so much global warming um, uh, side effects that it's ridiculous. Like yeah. the amount of fires, the amount, the, the amount of, um, uh, just like the disease that we just had to deal with, dealing with COVID, mm-hmm. um, just how it's impacting our food and all of that. It's just yeah. like the ocean just set on fire. Yeah. <laughs> Who else can say that? Like, and they, they didn't even make it a big deal, which blew my mind. We had to go to work the next day. <laughs> but the ocean was on fire I saw this funny TikTok today and he was like okay so we just completely we just completely let it go of our heads that the ocean was on fire they were like you know water was on fire the thing that's not supposed to be on fire was on fire and he was like so like so what happens when all the water is gone like how are you gonna bring the fires out with pot lids I was cracking <laughs> up I was like Ooh. he was like we gotta address this but yeah, we literally, we've already lived through so much. I'm only 31 and I'm like, damn, I already got so many stories to tell. And like, I can't wait to see this yeah. replay, you know, as history for some people. Um, I'm very interested to see how people tell this, to tell the story of this generation. Oh my God. <laughs> the past yeah. 10 years. Yeah. Very interesting. There's um, no chill thank you for making that connection because <laughs> yeah. that's exactly where it all kind of connects along with like you don't know, live in single like living single yes but um but yeah it, it all connects because and that's why I wanted I created this space to highlight you know just the dope and innovative right things that we're doing despite um, all the BS that's happening. Like we are still, we're adapting and we're still grinding and we're still hustling and we're still sharing and giving back and we're still creating a legacy and we're learning more. Not only are we learning how to get support for ourselves, but we're learning how to support others. Um, and I think that's such a, a dope thing to do um, and such a dope conversation to have. Like even, even in asking like, even with asking, like, hey, have you seen, are you, have you been thinking about seeing a therapist or mm-hmm. someone or like thereof or anything like that? Um, and I, I just think it's interesting, at least, at least amongst my friends, I'll say that, um, at least amongst, amongst my friends and, um, and what I'm seeing on my feed and social media. Um, but I did want to ask you, we're going to completely skip the game segment because I'm already <laughs> having a good time. <laughs> I'm already having a good time. We could play it if you want to later, but it's not as good as this. So, <laughs> um, but I want to ask, um, cause we, we talked a little bit before this and you were telling me about your experience in getting educated, like uh, for a lifetime, basically you went to PWIs. <laughs> I mean, I'm from Michigan. Um, so that is not rare. It's like mm. pretty commonplace. Uh, when if you come from a neighborhood like Pontiac, Detroit, Flint, mm. somewhat of Saginaw, somewhat of Grand Rapids, these like majority black uh, neighborhoods, you'll have a lot of black people who leave after uh, elementary school from their black 
majority black uh, public schools or charter schools and go to a majority white school. They do a lot of lottery um, and busing. So lottery is just like if you're in these target neighborhoods, they'll pick your name out and allow you to go to a school in a better <laughs> area. Yeah. yeah. So basically, so just bad. what Kamala Harris was was uh, putting Joe on blast for. Right. I mean, personally, I would like to see more kids who are currently in my position not have to leave their neighborhood to go to a better school and leave an area where people look like them to go to a a better school where people don't look like them. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But tell us about that experience for you, though, Um, especially, I mean, I went to, I went, I didn't go to a predominantly white school until high school, but even then it wasn't really predominantly white. Like we had a whole mixture. So mixed with people. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I definitely want to know more about that experience for you. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, yeah, after elementary school, uh, my mom and I decided that I needed to get out of the Pontiac public school district, um, which there's barely a Pontiac public school district now anyway. (laughs) Um, it's dwindled down so much. Uh, but, I left there and went to a private school called the Academy of Sacred Heart. It's a Catholic school. Um, I was like one year, seventh grade, I was the only black girl in my class. It was an all girls school. Um, and sixth grade, I mean, it was like one or two or three or something like that. It was so dismal. Like, um, And then eighth grade, there was a huge spike where there were a lot more uh, black girls I mean I would say like spike as in like seven of the 50 in our class or something like that was black you know and that was because <laughs> another school who had more black kids merged with our school okay. so and then they left the next year and it was back to me being one of the only ones <laughs> yeah so for me um I just wanted to fit in for real you know like in middle school I got made fun of. I don't know, for most of the time I don't even know why for real. Like why are these why are they picking on me? But mm. it was a lot of like messing with how I talk. So I tried to go home one day and talk like a valley girl, you know. And um my mom was like, looked at me, she was like, Don't you talk to me like that? <laughs> she was like, Don't change, don't change the way you talk. She knew exactly what I was doing. And ever since then, I didn't graduated law school talking the same. Like I still speak, I still speak African American vernacular English. I can't say ass. I don't know how to say it. You know, like toilet. You know what I mean? Tisha, scrimp, all of that same words that I was saying before I went to that school because I my mom validated me and she let me know I didn't need to change and I know I didn't. And it's not you know. It's not, it's not like I'm like, it's, I'm still smart. You know what I mean? That's yeah. what people need to realize. It, that goes around in our own community where we say, oh, you got to you talk smart, talk same. You got to cold switch. You got to yeah, cold no. switch. And a lot of us, I agree. A lot of us hold on to like respectability politics. And exactly. we're learning now that that don't mean shit. Exactly. So um, I survived that and then decided to put myself in the same predicament but I got that full ride you know when going to Central Michigan University in college you know I was one of the few black people there Uh, um, but the I I stayed true to myself you know like 
So my first year, I was in a journalism program. So I was on a newspaper writing articles and stuff. And immediately, like, I had a roommate who told me, like, don't you like chicken with hot sauce and watermelon and, like, all the stereotypes, right? Um, And you know what? I was like, I'm going to write an article about this and about (laughs) microaggressions. So I wrote a whole article about microaggressions, how dangerous they were and how because some people don't know this language, like this, mm-hmm. this knowledge of this language, having a vocabulary like that is powerful. Because mm-hmm. like, you can tell somebody treating you different, or other people may, may be treating you different and not know what they're doing. So once you put that word in their mind and say, like, this is a microaggression, you point it out and you say, like, these are different microaggressions. Not that I'm about to sit here and teach everybody, you know, what their racism is, their internalized racism is, but um, I enjoy writing on, on those topics. Um, I went to a lot of like events held by the Black Student Organization. Um, and I joined a multicultural sorority. Um, for me, there was no other option. You know, I wasn't gonna put myself in even more of a situation where I was outnumbered. You know, I really needed to feel validated and like I was important and like I mattered, you know, and I just didn't feel like that most of the time in a all white class. Um, and then the next year I became, my second year, I became a multicultural advisor, which was basically like a resident, um, assistant, mm-hmm. uh, or a resident advisor. I don't remember what they called the RAs in the building. Um, so I lived in the building with my residents, um, and I was supposed to help the, keep the recidivism rate, um, up for minorities so I would go around and create events to make them feel like you know more more comfortable have conversations about like you know how we could make the hall more like diverse and um just like a better atmosphere for minorities right and I would put all these education posts up and all that and so like I was in this position for a half of a year or like a full semester and then I had got basically attacked by one of my residents with like vulgar um you know racial slurs when they were doing what they had no business do running around the hallway breaking busting lights and I was trying to report them for doing that because that was my job um And so, yeah, uh, they ran down the hallway yelling the N-word, yelling my name, and I left the building, didn't turn back, and um, left my job. So, like, yeah, (laughs) my experience with PWIs from middle school to college was tumultuous, um, and it was just, like, constantly trying to be a fighter, constantly trying to be resilient, and at the same time, be an educator and be like look I'm here I see what y'all doing like literally showing them their face like (laughs) like this is this is what y'all doing to me um you know just being loud uh taking up space at the same time and yeah that was a hard experience to go through but it's part of my story you know yeah and now so when it came to like especially with the microaggressions, because I know Mm. for me with my experience, I don't think I really, I I kind of, I knew what what someone was telling me was like weird or off a little bit, but I didn't necessarily know. I didn't always know how to address it either. Mm. Um, But it it took like maybe some years later and I was like, wait a minute, that was some, 
(laughs) did you you ever have a moment where like yeah like when did you when did you really understand and was able to identify like wait a minute what they're saying is definitely connected to racism or to bias thinking oh I didn't get it until college like I straight up went through middle school and high school being treated like that and just thinking like oh I need to like change the way I talk my mom put me back together on that one I need to um, straighten my hair or you know put it in a different style not braids though because I'm gonna get talked about if I wear braids um like Kim Kardashian do it is no problem (laughs) um uh just like just certain things that they would say to me like I, I feel like there is a good amount of black culture that's just so wildly different from white culture like American culture Mm -hmm. that like it's the little things like even I'm gonna get personal like even from like um during the the beginning of puberty like black girls don't first go off to like shave their underarms and put on makeup that's not something that's very common in the black household to start when you start your puberty but for be fast (laughs) (laughs) right because you're gonna be fast if you do that exactly exactly but for white girls it's not like that they immediately learn how to shave they immediately start learning how to put on makeup and all of this and it's not seen as for them being fast right Mm. so for me I'm like now going into puberty in this predominantly white institution and I got a full set of hair under my underarms which I am now probably like not shaving at all um but yeah I do I did that and I was talked about like oh like why are you not shaving Mm -hmm. and then I like asked my mom to do it she's like no and then I do it behind her back and I cut myself up and I'm going to school like hurting because I don't know what I'm doing you know and then just having the white girls like paint my face in school like do makeup on me even though I didn't like makeup it was just like they're doing it you know what I mean and yeah. I'm looking like a clown because my skin tone is <laughs> right because they don't know what they doing right exactly ah. uh, so just like dealing with all of that was yeah. difficult but I definitely made some really good friends um I made like two best friends I would say out of that uh middle school and high school experience um and you know but other people, I just, I just think about it like the experiences, like what, what happened to them? Did they grow out of that? Did they learn that what how they were treating me was not okay? Yeah, I wonder, cause like those kids became adults and became but adults with power because me. yeah, they they became adults with power because they came from wealthy, well-off families mm-hmm. with parents and grandparents that had degrees and yeah. generational wealth and stuff like that. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't necessarily harp on those days thinking, oh, poor me. I think about like, oh, snap, those people, like, where are they? (laughs) Weirdos. (laughs) Some of them might might listen to this because I be putting, they on my social media, I put it out there. I just really hope that, you know, we all learning that they correct their their mentality. Yeah. Yeah. I I know there's several people I've gone to school with, especially in college, who then slid into some DMs, uh, you know, after, even before, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter movement really blew up and became global. Um, 
And I'll be honest, some of them, a, a good number of them, I would even, wouldn't even call allies, we'll call accomplices. Cause like some of them, you know, will get in there and yeah. read somebody else to fill. Like there's not a lot of work I have to do these days. Awesome. But, That's yeah, awesome. Which is super dope. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm going to throw in a new question in there too, because I'm okay. thinking about, so we know that like going to, um, we know that when we, when we talk about Black history, and we talk about Black history and learning about that in the educational system, um, especially today where, you know, we're, we're having a growing conversation about critical, um, critical race theory, which is basically like talking about history and Black history and the truth, ex mm. the true experience of Black history in schools. And we have folks who are trying to ban that and take that away from us on one hand. And on the other hand, we have folks who like are trying to play with us and say, oh, but we got Juneteenth, da, 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 you know, all that good stuff, right? That's happening, right? It's a federal holiday. Take this with you, but mm -hmm. we don't want to talk about what it is though. Um, <laughs> but how did you learn though? How did you learn about Black history and the true experience of Black history? Um, with going to primarily PWIs? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I definitely <laughs> didn't learn it in school. Um, I will say that I, like the black mentors that I had in my family, like, well, I mean, not just in my family, but around me, um, like old teachers from elementary school that continued to follow me, um, teachers from college uh, that were around me, I learned from them. But I always tell people like, um, African-Americans specifically, I feel maybe other Pan-Africans are good at this, but I just don't personally know. Um, African-Americans are really good at oral history. Like we tell each other everything that that is going on and that happened in the past. And um, I personally like to sit around with my elders and just listen to them talk about everything that happened everything that happened to them back in the day, their grandparents and everything. I like to listen to my friends' grandparents. So I learned from word of mouth, from oral history. Like when people were learning about Juneteenth, for example, my family's from Galveston, Texas. So like, boom, that's a given. I grew up in Michigan, but my grandma already taught me about Juneteenth because she's from Galveston, Texas, and she didn't know a life of not celebrating Juneteenth on June 19th. <laughs> like, That's beautiful. Uh, right. yes. and then, yeah, and then like the Great Migration from the South to the North um, to work um, in the car industry or at these factories. My family went through it, so I knew about it. Um, housing, uh, like redlining, housing discrimination, partly learned from my family and their own experiences and partly from books that they would give me, like have me reading and stuff like that. Um, I was always in some books. I was always at a library. So I learned, and I was mostly interested in black history. So that's how I learned. Um, but definitely like, I don't remember celebrating anything significant, significant in school you know, or like learning about anything significant in school was always the same. Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, you know, it was always yes. that. But for me, what I did uh, in sixth or seventh grade, we had an art project. We took, uh, it was art, it was like a mix of everything we, all of our subjects. 
we were supposed to take a person who inspired us and draw a picture of them, paint it in, write a monologue and perform it. Um, and just like all the, I, we might have had Spanish mixed in it too. I picked Shirley Chisholm because that was my personal shero. See, you know, and like, who knew about Shirley Chisholm back then? I mean, I definitely did, but like, who else was knew that there was a mm -hmm. black woman who in the 70s ran for president and had a really good race, like mm -hmm. became one of the main people running in a on a Democratic ticket mm -hmm. for the primaries. Like, mm -hmm. who knew about that? Who yeah. knew about her as a senator, uh, a black woman senator, um, helping, helping to establish the Black Caucus. Mm -hmm. um, me, at 12 or 13 years old, I knew about her. I knew everything about her. I celebrate Shirley to this day with like t-shirts and pins. And um, I love working for Black women, um, Black women's political campaigns. Mm -hmm. um, and I helped with Monica Montgomery's campaign. Monica, we love Monica. Yes, yes. so right, she's a council member out in San Diego. Yes, so. the People's Council member. Exactly. So you know, like, yeah, now nah, my granddad, even though he had a third grade education, he was always into like politics and stuff like that. Like he was always at the city town town hall meetings. You know. Uh, having grievances or just listening and you yeah. related information with me tell me this is the time you need to turn on the tv to watch it and, um <laughs> yeah that sounds a, like me our audience knows that's that's me full force so yeah, yeah. we will get along just fine <laughs> yeah I had an uncle who was a council member in Pontiac as well I still have him <laughs> thank goodness um so yeah I had a good recipe because I know there were like a couple other black people going, you know, going along my same timeline in the same PWIs that I was at. And they didn't come out like me. Mm -hmm. They didn't come out bad at all. It's just that didn't come, they didn't come out necessarily really pushing for the betterment of black people. Like they aren't mm -hmm. driving the same campaign that I am. Yeah. And that, that's because you know I had a good recipe of like family and friends and people around me who were like super into uplifting the black community yeah. um, at the same time yeah that's beautiful and I think that's a story very similar to a lot of us um, and a lot of our our generation of like we had to learn even still to this day the civil rights act was was signed when 65 66 years ago and even to yeah. this day like we're still fighting for basic education in our neighborhoods and we're still fighting for um to learn about our well, history and things like that so um I think a lot of us have have that a similar experience of learning outside of the schools um and still connecting our cultures I think we should be even more upset because like that wasn't the beginning the civil rights act in 1965 was not the beginning of oh, civil yeah. rights yeah. i was telling you earlier that it actually was in about 1865 mm -hmm. during the reconstruction period we had our first civil rights bill which was to mm -hmm. um eliminate racism in the making and enforcement of contracts which is really important for the free people to be able to 
to begin to establish themselves. Mm -hmm. And it came with a lot of federally enforced um, criminal laws. Like Mm -hmm. if you break that Civil Rights Act, you can get fined or go to jail. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there were federal marshals, there were federal police everywhere in the South trying to enforce the laws that were anti-slavery and uh, trying to, you know, reconstruct our nation. Our economy was dependent on Black um, enslavement and labor, labor, free labor. So um, that was like, you know, a violent period that abruptly ended. (laughs) Like it just ended. They didn't reconstruct nothing. So they didn't reconstruct nothing. So we should be even more, we should go back further than that and be even more upset that we're dealing with what we're dealing with now. Oof, I received that. I understand that. So yeah, we'll hold on to that. I'm sure our audience, audience, I hope y'all wrote that down. I hope y'all saved that portion, screen record or something, because that is that significant information. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, and we know that there's been hundreds of years of, of fighting, um, but yeah, to really, to put a, a title to it, um, and to really have an understanding of it, I think that's, that's more information that we're missing in schools, even in households, like, um, in organizations that are fighting for folks, you know, so, um, yeah, it, it's important to dig deeper and go back even further, um, to and be angry, important. tap, yeah, tap into your anger too, when you look at it to get mad. I'm mad. <laughs> be mad. And it's okay to be the angry black woman, angry mm. black man, whatever. We got because, something to be angry about. Right. We have something to be angry about. That is for sure. Um, so I, I want I want to hear, um, and we'll sum this up too, but like I want to hear how all of all of the information, all we just received from you. Um which is such dope information. I'm truly inspired. Um, And again, I'm going to say thank you later. Everybody knows I say thank you and gratitude all the time. I'm going to say thank you later, but just I'm going to take this time now to just say thank you for um, just all of what you just released to us, um, all of what you've shown us and already inspired us with. Um, Because I'm like, I'm like vibrating (laughs) high, making connections over here. Um, (laughs) I'm motivated, that is for sure. But I I definitely want to know how all of those experiences really fueled, in your words in particular, but how they really fueled you um, making a decision to to practice law and civil law, right, you said? Yeah, um, I wanted to do civil rights. I went into law school, wanted to do immigration and civil rights um and the reason why I wanted to do immigration is because I've also traveled the world I've been in 26 countries I think I mentioned before and I've seen what it's like to have people who are um either undocumented or stateless like don't have a country of record at all um and I wanted to work with the immigration system to um ensure that people aren't stateless or aren't undocumented and have like uh, resources at their disposal to get their citizenship. Um, And so uh, civil rights, y'all know exactly why I went into civil rights, everything that I uh, discussed. So I went into law school or before law school, I went 
I knew I wanted to go to law school knowing that, you know, I had experienced racism, microaggressions myself. My mom was um, falsely in prison. Um, actually, sorry, scratch that. My mom was falsely arrested. <laughs> um, she was taken in handcuffs, put in the back of the car. So technically, if you're in law school, you know that's false imprisonment. <laughs> uh, but like, even not lay person, lay person's term, you wouldn't say false imprisonment. You say false arrest. Um, so anyway, um, I had experienced all of that firsthand and just the knowledge of our country's background. I want to go into civil rights. So um, I went through law school hoping to do that. Um, and I was able to, you know, write my law review note about uh, the first Civil Rights Act, which was for equal uh, getting rid of discrimination um, and equal enforcement of contracts. Um, so then I went immediately into um, immigration law, working for the Department of Justice, for the appeals court. But at the same time, I still worked on civil rights matters through my organization, the Black Bar Applicant Fund. Um, I've been working with other organizations like the United for Diploma Privilege uh, campaign to help actually eliminate the bar exam because we found out last year, like us graduates, there was already public knowledge. There were already articles like Ebony articles from the 70s about this, but we found out that um, the bar exam is actually something from Jim Crow era. <laughs> like is the bar exam that we have today is um, part of institutional racism. Why am Let's I do. not surprised? Yeah, so I was part of that campaign while I was studying for the bar exam. And that was, you know, a way to practice civil rights. Um, and we were able to get Washington to eliminate the bar exam last year. Washington State, uh, we were able to get Utah, Oregon, and surprisingly, Louisiana, all did not uh, require a bar exam for people who met a certain criteria, which was a good amount of people um, mm. in that state. And then Washington, D.C. has, I have my license through their diploma privilege, which also eliminated, I didn't have to take a bar exam for my Washington, D.C. license. Um, and Wisconsin already doesn't have, they never, they never decided to uh, have a bar exam for their state graduates. Um, because the ABA's racist uh, campaign did not, uh, I guess, influence them after all. <laughs> yeah, but like in the early 1910s, the ABA started a campaign to get, uh, to purify the legal profession because three Black people had incidentally become members of the bar because all, all you had to do back then was like graduate from law school and then maybe answer a couple questions that a judge had for you. That was the bar exam. Go up to the bar yeah. to the judge yeah. and you answer a few questions. Now the bar exam is an exhausting two or three day um, relay where you answer 200 multiple choice questions and yeah. six to 12 essays. Um, it's expensive. Yeah, it, it estimated um, cost about $15,000 to study for the bar exam. 
Um, and that includes registration fees, cost of living, um, any of the materials that you need, the bar exam, bar prep programs. Like normally you need a commercial bar prep program because schooling alone doesn't help. You don't retain all that information for that long. Um, so commercial bar prep alone is usually like $3,000. Um, and then you got to eat and they don't suggest you work for 10 weeks. Um, so the first time I studied for the bar exam and then I ended up getting diploma privilege, I didn't work. The second time I studied for the bar exam and I actually took the California bar exam and passed, I did work. I worked the whole time except for like two weeks before I had to take leave without pay. Now, just imagine a brand new graduate. Yeah, I had scholarships, but like I said, I didn't have money to begin with. So my scholarships yeah. were it. My scholarships were it. I was like surviving off of that alone. Especially in expensive ass California. It, uh, I started in California, moved to DC. Ain't no better. I'm gonna tell you that it ain't no better. <laughs> ain't no better. <laughs> maybe worse. Actually, maybe worse. Uh, so yeah, wow. yeah. I uh, I will say that like I indirectly somehow managed to do civil rights and immigration at the same time. <laughs> um, yeah, my experience from PWI definitely led to all of that and motivated me to do all of this. Yeah. It's my fuel. Which is great. I'm checking the time, but I'm like, I want to yeah. know so many other things. <laughs> because, like, how is that? So you work for the DOJ. Yes, I love it. <laughs> and, I actually do. Which is good. That's the, yeah. I'm not going to say that's the first, but that's good. <laughs> Just kidding, it's not the first. No. <laughs> um. But immigration and immigration law right now is is a hot topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think a lot of people, I think people are, I don't even know if a lot of people are really trying to learn. They want to talk about immigration. <laughs> right. You don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> There's a lot of shit bugs just <laughs> do not know and understand. Um, that is, I, I'm, I'll be honest, that's the conversation I really am picky with who I talk to because I am international yeah. international yeah I try to like downplay it but you know <laughs> um but I'm really interested in what that's like for you because I know it on I know it from the standpoint of asylum seekers I know it mm-hmm. from the standpoint of undocumented folks I know it from the standpoint of folks who um right now are camped out in a community of tents right at the border between Tijuana and San Diego or Tijuana, Mexico and the United States, Tijuana and San Diego. I know it from that end, but I'm definitely interested. If you have the time, I know we have six minutes, so let me know. I have time. I I can't go too much into immigration. I could just yeah. say that I get a range of stuff. So I have had a segment of like working on cases like that and I'll continue to work on cases like that. But then I have a segment of like, people who have been here for a long term, people who were legally permanent residents and for whatever reason are losing that, people who are married and getting visas. Like I see a wide spectrum. So it's kind mm-hmm. of like I have like a hopeful view and then like, you know, that other view of just like, whoa, <laughs> that's a lot going on. <laughs> um, but I do enjoy working. I work for like a neutral party. I work for the court. So I enjoy being able to just like not have to, contemplate and deal with you know like there's a lot of pressure to represent someone who's in that position because there's not always relief there's just not legally yeah, yeah. um 
So yeah, that's probably the most that I can say about it. <laughs> okay, girl, that's all I'll take. Okay. If I stop here to record, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. so um, but I'm happy to hear that, you know, you love it and that there's fulfillment in what you're doing. Um, because it definitely sounds connected directly with like just your passion, even mm-hmm. starting from um a younger age, um, and your determination to help people. Um, which is, I think is such a beautiful thing because we don't always, we don't think of lawyers as being helpful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm trying to change that. Um, I mean, like Genevieve and I worked a lot with this thing called the neighborhood, um, law school. I don't know if yeah. you heard of it. I yeah. have I've attended. Yeah. Years yeah, ago. That's crazy. Okay. Maybe we didn't meet, but like, I definitely, uh, <laughs> volunteer with it. I think maybe two years in a row or one year. Um, either way, so I try to get involved in things that help people realize like lawyers aren't the enemy. Um, you can get uh, legal services that are affordable. You can get legal services that are going to be tools for self-help, you know, when you're working mm-hmm. through the pro se process, like mm-hmm. representing yourself, but you just need somebody to guide you in that. And then also, if you are paying for legal services a lot of times it's worth the money there are ways to like get like basically I know some people who have had ins- type of like legal insurance insurance that they pay into monthly that will help them cover a lawyer for what they may need mm. so it's good to ask your job if that is an option because some yeah. jobs like you can, that's a benefit you can opt into um but a lot of people try to get around hiring a lawyer no bueno definitely yeah. hire a lawyer or consult a lawyer when you're in a, situ- a sticky situation yeah um and not even a sticky situation meaning something bad but if you like starting a company or something go to a lawyer mm-hmm. um that's where for our audience if y'all that's where marissa came into play marissa talbert she was on our show oh two wow seasons ago yeah and that's i know that's her focus and you just mm-hmm. reminded me i was i was following a case of a man um who was representing himself he oh yeah we've murder case in florida he was representing himself um or really the what was like triple homicide or something like that yeah it was it was a bad situation because his son i know his son went up to speak yes yeah Uh, one attempted because his son testified Mm-hmm. And he had to like cross-examine his son, and yeah. he, like he legitimately asked, like, "Did I hurt you?" His son was like, "Yes, you stabbed yes. me, bro." Like, yeah, like this is not. Yeah, I mean, he definitely put on theater. I say, like, you know, that's part of litigation theater, being able to perform well. But like, a defendant shouldn't be speaking that much, <laughs> like <laughs> for real, like, cause, cause, like. <laughs> A defendant can really go to whole trial not saying one thing, and that's probably the in the defendant's best interest. Yeah. So that was like, as a lawyer, someone who's been trained in law, um, that was <laughs> hard to watch. Hard to watch for sure. Um, yeah. I wouldn't recommend it. And yeah, I don't know where his case is gonna go. Oh, he was charged. He's oh okay. I didn't feel I didn't find I didn't figure out what happened at the end, but yeah, yeah charged and convicted. That didn't take long for them at all. Yeah. It was like 
Uh, Throw him under the jail. Um, I know people who fire. I will say this. Let me put in a plug for public defenders. Some of my best friends are public defenders, okay? Mm-hmm. Public defenders can be great, can be better than private private defense attorneys, okay? Mm-hmm. Give your public defender a chance. They do know what they're talking about, okay? <laughs> like, let them defend you. Now, there are situations where your public defender wants you to take some insane plea and there's literally, like, no evidence or, like, that was too much time and it just kind of looks like they want to get you off their book. A private defense attorney could do the same thing, yet then mm-hmm. go consult someone else. But, like, don't be so quick to, like, get rid of somebody just because they're a public defender. Like, they can mm-hmm. work miracles. and They're very passionate about their job a lot. Like, going through law school, like, people who wanted to be public defenders were the most passionate the Mm. whole entire time they knew exactly like I'm going to be a public defender like they kept applying they did a ton of internships with the public defender's office like spent so much of their time not getting paid working for this effort so like yeah man like public defenders get kicked around a lot like reputation wise but they're they're great trust them (laughs) <laughs> yeah, definitely. Def- I, I agree. I agree. I, I was like, well, okay, I'm about to put my whole <laughs> record on the line out here. I'm going to refrain from doing that. Um, but okay, last question. To you. All right. How are you using your platform? In your words, how are you using your platform to influence this generation and the next i've already i've already kind of gave you a little bit of that i've already said a little bit of that right i want to hear, hear from you i want to hear from you <laughs> yeah um i definitely want to make the ride the journey easier for this generation people coming right after me um and the next you know even if somebody is older than me and trying to pursue law or get scholarships like i got my aunt uh by the time I graduated law school I got her to go to law school so yeah (laughs) um but I'm constantly doing little informational interviews with people and I started my black bar applicant fund or aka community fund for black bar applicant and so far we've raised more than sixty thousand dollars and given scholarships to more than a hundred bar applicants we've given resources to them free bar prep courses I told you that's three thousand dollar ticket we've given more than like I want to say like 22 23 people um free bar prep courses free bar prep books we did have to recycle some books like have like used books give it to people but that's still you know that's something at the end of the day that somebody may not have had um and so that's what I'm doing I'm just I'm just using my boys to just like relay this information using my time related information and using my organization to get these funds back to our community um and like pinpoint it like that we need black lawyers let's pinpoint it right at this moment where it's either make or break um for us yeah that's amazing listen (laughs) look (laughs) this is why this podcast exists yeah. <laughs> this is exactly why this podcast is it's because we have some amazing people in our generation who are doing amazing things um and who are leaving a legacy that is unmatched so much gratitude thank you so much for being here mandisa is gonna be so jealous <laughs> 
Oh my god. She's gonna be so jealous because she's always like, oh, every she's always just in awe of every guest. So I think I'm like in awe for the both of us. <laughs> um, but thank you. But let our audience know um how they can find you, how they can connect with you. Um, mm -hmm. you listed quite a few handles already too. So feel free to list those again. Um, and give us a reminder. Okay, so on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Octavia Viento, and that's O-C-T-A-V-I-A-V-I-E-N-T-O. And then you can find me on LinkedIn, Octavia Carson. And then my organization is BlackBarApplicantFund.com and at BlackBarAppFund on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so much. And of course, you all know where to find us. That is at Living Millennial Productions on Instagram, Living Millennial Productions on Facebook, livingmillennialproductions.com. And now on YouTube, Living Millennial Productions as well. This has been an amazing conversation. Again, I am your favorite host, Brittany. This was Living Millennial. All right, friends, that's our show. Tune in next time. Hey, more to come. More, more, more to come. Be sure to subscribe to our show. Follow us on IG and tell us what you think.